Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. If you walk into almost any hotel in our country and you look at the elevator buttons, if there are many stories, you'll notice you can count them. One, two, three. Skip a few. Eleven, twelve, fourteen. Now, the architects who were brilliant enough to construct this building know that the number 13 comes after the number 12. So why is it not after 12 on the elevator buttons? There's not a reason. Did you know that? There's not a reason, but it's true. Nor will you find room number 13, room 11, 12, 14, or 113 or 213, and this is true in many hospitals as well. In our age where we are post-enlightenment, we are scientific, we like to think, we will not put 13 in our buildings. And if you ask why, the answer is there is not a reason. There is not a reason why. This is what we call superstition. 13 is superstitiously an unlucky number. Now, the Bible does say that some numbers have significance beyond themselves, like 666, but not 13. It's not in the Bible as an unlucky number. Where does that come from? You know that fact. Why? It's from our ancestors. Someone made it up a long time ago, and it's been passed down, and now it has kind of a hold on our whole country. The 13 is unlucky. Friday the 13th is an unlucky day. It's really a what if that has a hold on us. We know, of course, 13 is not an unlucky number, but if you're in room 13 in the hospital, what if it is and you die? So no room number 13, and there's not really a reason for it. If you look closely, you'll find superstition plays a large role in our world. Many Catholics, if they're selling their house, you may know, will take a statue of St. Joseph and you bury him in the yard, upside down, maybe facing the house, maybe not facing the house, maybe by the flowers. There's all kinds of ideas. That's not an official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. So why are Catholics doing that? They don't know. <laughs> you don't know. We don't know. Nobody knows. It's just a thing we do to sell houses. Protestants do the same Ours take a little bit of a different form. For example, that young girl who is terrified of hell. And therefore, every single night when she goes to bed in the same way, with the same words, she tries to rehearse every sin she's committed, confess it to God, and ask the forgiveness of Jesus. It becomes a ritual every night. And she's afraid if she doesn't do the ritual, what might happen? Did she learn that ritual from the Bible? No. She developed it herself. In the Word of Faith movement, there is a superstition. It's not in the Bible. It is a superstition that if you speak ill about your life, you will bring ill into your life. On a more common level, <laughs> football fans, the lucky socks. 
and someone wears those socks and the team wins three in a row unexpectedly and for the rest of time, those are the lucky socks. And this is half in jest, but it's, you know, it's only half in jest. Now, that person believes those socks possess some unscientific kind of luck helping that team perform. This isn't just an American thing. The Kara tribe of Ethiopia, until just recently, had a conviction passed down from their ancestors that certain children were born as Mingi children, meaning cursed children. And if a child was born or grew up and was discovered to be a Mingi child, they would kill that child. Because it was believed that the Mingi child staying in the tribe would bring bad luck or a curse upon the entire tribe. How do you know if a child is a Mingi? One way is if the top teeth come in before the bottom teeth. Thankfully, the Kara have changed their ways, but other tribes continue this practice. This is universal. This is everywhere. If you were to ask them, why? Why do you do the top teeth? Why? There's not a reason. It's not about reason. It is a fear that's developed into a superstition without reason, but it takes a hold on people. And we experience this. Superstition does have consequences. And God's word has come to us in the scriptures to free us from a number of things. To free us from guilt, to free us from judgment, also to free us from superstition. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, not just from condemnation, but also, quote, in 1 Peter, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Those are superstitions. They are fueled by ignorance together with fear, and the gospel comes in and wipes away the ignorance, and the gospel of peace says, do not be afraid. And when ignorance and fear are removed, then we are set free from life-dominating or even just confusing superstitions. We ought not, therefore, to be as Christians superstitious people. We're spiritual. The world thinks we're odd for the things we believe, but there's a rational basis. It's there in the scriptures. That's our authority. Other things not in the scriptures, those are superstitions. So as we continue today our study in 1 Samuel, we are going to find Israel engaging in a kind of superstition that will cost her 30,000 lives. 30,000 lives. Because she did not seek God's word, but made an assumption that developed into a superstition, as we're going to see. So let's look at this together because we don't want to be this ourselves. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 4. God had already revealed his plans, his words clearly through Samuel at this point, who's over in Shiloh. And now, these people will try to have victory over their enemies without God's word. 1 Samuel 4, starting verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let's 
bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that's where Samuel is and Eli, and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, there at Ebenezer, where the Israelites are, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, probably a couple miles away, there in Aphek, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Remember that at the beginning of chapter 3, we were told that at this low point, this low ebb in Israel's history, God's word was very rare. But then there was Samuel. And with Samuel, everything changed. At the beginning of chapter 3, there was no frequent vision. By the end of chapter 3, God regularly was speaking to his people through Samuel. God's word had arrived. It had, for a long time, God had been quiet. Throughout the period of the judges, it was a dark time. But now God was speaking. And so when you look at the beginning of chapter 4, it says that that word of God through Samuel, it had come to all the people. In other words, the nation is now aware that God is speaking again, and it's through Samuel who is at Shiloh. But when Israel gets in trouble, as they do in this text, in their battle against the Philistines, and 4,000 of them fall and they flee back to their camp, nobody is interested in God's word. That, I think, is the essential problem here. God is now speaking. They have a question, a valid question, as we'll see, but they're not looking to God for the answer. Instead of looking to God for the answer of why have we been defeated, they don't wait for God's answer, and they assume something instead, something God has not revealed. It is a superstition that if we bring that golden box, the ark here, we'll be saved. So what we're going to look at today is really two things, one larger than the other. Briefly at first, I want to look at the question that they ask, which is a very valid question. Why have we been defeated before the Philistines? That's good. They should ask that. 
But then the bulk of our time, I want to look at their own superstitious answer to that question, which is exactly what we do not want to do. So let's begin with this question, which I said is valid. It's valid for any of us if you're a Christian. When something happens in your life, especially something of significance, it's valid to ask the question, why? What is God doing? To see this question, we have to lead up to it, see the setting of it. The question's in verse 3. But see again what leads up to this question, starting in verse 1. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, pause there. In terms of setting, we encounter here the Philistines for the first time in 1 Samuel. Get used to it. They are the main bad guys throughout 1 Samuel. The Philistines were a group of people, they were descended from Noah's son, Ham. But they were not through Canaan, they were actually related to the Egyptians. And they had come to inhabit, at this time, probably the early Iron Age, they had come to inhabit the western coast of what we today consider Palestine, the southwestern coast. So if you know Israel, you know that on the very side of Israel, there is the Mediterranean Sea. Mediterranean Sea, sorry, I'm doing it in my direction, probably backward for you. The Mediterranean Sea, and then there's the land mass of Israel there, but they're right on the Mediterranean Sea. And the Philistines, they had an area, Philistia, that they lived in, and it was on the coast. Coming up from Egypt, or Egypt over here, you come up the coast, here's on the coast, five major cities that made up Philistia. At this point in Israel's history, Israel was mainly scattered throughout the hill country, that was just east of the coast. So you have the Philistines on the coast, and then you have Israel just east of them in the hill country. We've been talking about Ephraim, the hill country of Ephraim. That's where Shiloh is, for example. So you see they're close together, but in separate regions. What seems to happen here in this text is that the Philistines want to extend their influence and their borders northward. northward. Ekron, which is the northernmost city of their five major cities for the Philistines, they're on the coast. Ekron is about 20 miles south of Aphek in our text. So you go 20 miles up the coast and you will reach Aphek. And the Philistines have gone up there. They've gone up there from their usual location. They're probably trying to take Aphek and that region up north, which brings them into conflict with Israel. Aphek, just so you are aware, it was a very important location because if you follow the Via Maris, which is a road that follows up the coast there, it follows the coast, it's important, trade goes on there, commerce, military goes on that road. Well, that road follows the coast, but at some point meets the Yarbuk River, which in a sense blocks it. It's very marshy. So that road has to turn inland about eight miles and it comes to Aphek. All that really means is that Aphek was very important because north-south travel along the coast had to go through Aphek. The Philistines knew that and said, we need Aphek. And up to Aphek they go, and now they are fighting against the Israelites who don't want them to have Aphek, of course. So these Philistines are the bad guys. You'll see Goliath is a Philistine. 
After the time of David, who subdues the Philistines, the Philistines are never a major threat to God's people again. So they are contained in 1 Samuel. This is their heyday. They were in Judges just two times. The judge Shamgar kills some of them and Samson fights them. But that was not a lot. Here is where their heyday is, the Philistines. And they're going north trying to take Aphek. That's where we are. That's the background here. It does tell us that God's people had encamped at Ebenezer. We don't actually know where Ebenezer was, but we guess that it was two miles east of Aphek, a little bit inland. Makes sense. Not the same Ebenezer that we'll see in chapter 7. Ebenezer means rock of help, and Samuel's going to make an Ebenezer later. We sing about, here I raise my Ebenezer. Not the same one, probably. This is a location nearby to Aphek where they camp for this fight. The battle happens. Israel loses this first skirmish. 4,000 men die. Israel has to run back to Ebenezer in flight. That's the setting. Okay, so now you are ready for the question that they ask once they've run back to camp. Specifically, the elders, the leaders, ask this question. Verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The leaders are turning from what's obvious, what they can look at with their eyes, the fact that they've been defeated, and they're trying to move to something invisible, which is, why has God let that happen? Notice they are right. God let it happen. God had promised his people if they're faithful, they'll win their battles. They lost a battle, something is wrong, and they're trying to figure out what is wrong? So that question is very legitimate. The question's not the problem. That's actually exactly the question they should be asking at that point. Because not only have 4,000 died, but now if they continue losing battles against the Philistines, the Philistines will come and kill all of them and take all their things. So this matters a lot to get this answer right. When you encounter some difficulty in your life, it is not wrong to ask why God. You have to be content with the answer or with no answer, but it's very natural to wonder why. If you have a God who truly is all-powerful, controls all events, and loves you, you will naturally wonder why someone just ripped the front of your car off. Why that? He didn't, that didn't have to happen, you know? It could still be there. The bumper could be there, and it's not there. So we ask, Why? That's what they're doing here. A tragedy has struck and they're asking why, and that is good. Sometimes when we ask why something has happened, it will lead us to maybe acknowledge some clear sin in our lives for which God is disciplining us. Be careful here. Tragedies are not always disciplined from God, but they can be a part of his discipline. So it's good to ask why, and you can look in your life and go, am I committing some very clear sin that I need to repent of? God uses circumstances to that end. Actually, that's exactly what Israel should have done. If Israel would have done that, this would be a very different story. Because there was a clear sin in Israel, and it really was the cause of this tragedy in this case. Not always is, but it was in this case. It was Eli's house. And of course, this was also a low ebb for Israel as a nation. Soon they're going to reject God as their king and choose a human king instead. So they got their own problems. But it would have been better for them 
to see their defeat by 4,000. Why has this happened? Repent. Actually, when Joshua leads the people generations earlier and they're defeated before Ai, this is what he does. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Good question. Notice how it differs from the question asked in our text. Number one, it was done in a context of repentance. And when God told him then, well, it's because there's sin in the camp, they dealt with the sin and then they succeeded. Number two, he actually asked the question to God, which was a very good idea since only God had the answer. But notice that in our text, the leaders of Israel are asking the question to each other. Why have we been defeated? Why did God let us be defeated before the Philistines? That would be such a wonderful question to take over to Shiloh because now you have a prophet. And you know you have a prophet. And he's right over there at Shiloh. Go over there and inquire of the Lord, what's our sin or what is happening? That would have been great. Of course, that's not what they do. So the question is not the problem. The problem is that instead of getting an answer from God via his own word, they made up their own answer. That's what they did. They made up their own answer. Verse 3, they ask the question. They don't wait for God to reply. Then they say, let's bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. If you don't know the ark of the covenant, God commanded Israel to build this ark back in Sinai when he gave the Ten Commandments. This was part of the tabernacle. It was a box. Actually, it was about two feet by four feet at its base, which is regulation size for a cornhole board. So if you know a cornhole board, that is the size of the Ark of the Covenant, about two feet tall, covered in gold. Inside were the Ten Commandments, testimony of the covenant, a jar of manna to remind them of God's provision. You had Aaron's staff, which had budded there to settle a dispute. Those three things are inside there. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was the mercy seat. It was a golden lid. It had two golden statues of cherubim, which are these majestic angels with their wings reaching toward each other. The idea was that God dwelt uniquely there above the cherubim, as though his very throne were there. That was God dwelling in their midst. Of course, God is everywhere, but that is where he uniquely dwelt for Israel. And you see that in our text, actually, verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. Now, this is how every superstition is born. It starts with a question, even a valid question, about why things are happening. And then instead of looking to God for an answer, we assume an answer. Every superstition is born as an assumption. Why has God defeated us? Assumption. Because we didn't bring the Ark of the Covenant. Now, did God say it's because you didn't bring the Ark of the Covenant? No. So how did they come up with this answer? I don't know. <laughs> it's just a guess. 
Now, granted, there's some quote-unquote truth in the guess, and that's how superstitions work too. There's usually some little grain of truth in there. Because when Joshua went, for example, and fought against Jericho, God said, said it clearly, Joshua, take the ark and it goes in front of the people and you march around the city. So God gave them victory with the ark at the front of them. But the difference between what happened with Joshua and what's happening in our text is God saying something, you see? God told Joshua, do this, he did, and he won. Probably these Israelites are remembering some of that history, and they're thinking, well, it worked for him. Maybe it'll work for us. Let's go get the ark. The difference is, God didn't say it would work for you. <laughs> he didn't say it. They made it up. It is an assumption. Why did my football team lose? Wrong socks. Wrong socks. How do you know that? <laughs> Why are our crops not growing? The Mingi children. On the basis of what? And on and on. It's always an assumption. Notice their assumption. It is, like I said, built on this tiny bit of truth, but it doesn't have God's word. Actually, if they would have asked God, they go to Shiloh to get the ark. If they had gone to Shiloh to get God's word instead, they would find the problem. Actually, it's already been stated clearly at Shiloh. It's been said. It's Eli's house. It's Hophni and Phinehas. They have to die. They have to be judged for their sacrilege. It has already been stated so clearly multiple times. So they run to Shiloh where Samuel is, who can tell them, and they ignore Samuel. Get out of the way. Give us that box. We need that box. It's going to save us. It's the wrong way to approach this problem that they had. Actually, our text shows us the problem too. Verse 4, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. They think the problem is we don't have the box. The problem is you have Hophni and Phinehas who have sinned against God. And God's already said it, but they're not listening. Notice too that this assumption of theirs is built around something very tangible, physical, and visible. And this is the way superstitions work as well. Their focus is on the box. They do think about God. Why has God let us be defeated? But their focus is on the box. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And if you notice with every superstition, there's an it, there's a thing, is a black cat. Nobody knows why that's unlucky, but it's a thing. You can see it. That's scary. You went under the ladder. Why is that unlucky? Nobody knows, but it's a thing. A broken mirror, a 13th floor room, even um, in Roman Catholicism, the host takes on this superstitious sense we can't let even crumbs of it fall and rats eat it because they're eating Jesus' body. There's a bit of superstition in this. Something tangible, physical. And then the acts that we have to do to avoid these fears like knocking on wood. Why? <laughs> Why? Who, what? It's wood. Knock on metal. Why is it knock on wood? You don't know. But see, it is a tangible act and it gives you some relief in your mind. Like, phew, if I didn't knock on wood that bad thing could have happened, but now that I knocked on wood, but there's no reason for that. But it provides some relief. It's always these tangible, physical things. So when the ark comes in, 
Yes, they understand the ark. It represents God's presence. But there's a real focus on the box. Get the box here. And it will save us from our enemies. Now, the movement goes from an assumption, which is where superstitions start, and that develops into what we will call an obsession. Verse 5, as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Fear is always the soil from which superstitions are born. They grow right out of that kind of soil. The people are afraid. They've just seen 4,000 of their comrades killed. They're afraid they will be taken over by their enemies, the Philistines. They are desperate. They don't know what to do. But here comes the golden box. And so even though there's not really a reason for them to think that the golden box will save them, Still, that's just how superstition works. It's born out of fear and there's a sense of relief. Oh, I knocked on the wood. Finally, here's the golden box. We're safe. I wore the right socks. We brought the golden box. This is why superstitions usually really turn into kinds of obsessions. People are afraid and they can't get it out of their mind. If you're in the 13th room, you just can't stop thinking about it. Is something terrible going to happen to me? There's no reason for it, but you just it's in there. It's in there. It becomes an obsession. It can really take over. Here you see this religious fervor. All Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. They don't have a reason to do that. God is not on their side. God has spoken. Judgment. Ears will tingle. It will be bad. That's what they ought to be listening to. But here comes the golden box. Hooray! We're saved. It's only a superstition. You can see this in medieval times. The medieval Roman Catholic Church, which had some differences from today, but at that time, the sacramental system that was introduced by the church had a real dominating hold, an obsessive hold, you could say, over Europe. Because people were afraid, plagues would happen, people would die. There was a sense of God's terrifying judgment. We have to get right with God before we die. And the church came in and said, here is a system centered around the host mass, the host elevating the body of Christ there in the bread. And if you participate in the system, you will get enough grace to make it through purgatory into heaven. How do you know that's true? Not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. How do you know trust us. And people got dominated by really what amounts to a superstition, not on the basis of anything God said. Little bits of truth on the bottom there, but that's not what God didn't say the sacramental system. That's why when Martin Luther, the monk, who eventually, he was part of the church, he eventually opposed the church. When he was in Rome as a good monk crawling up on his knees, the Scala Sancta, where Jesus supposedly walked and praying on every step in order to alleviate some of his sins, and he gets to the top And he says to himself, who knows whether it's true? An assumption, not on the basis of God's word, that turns into an obsession that can take over whole groups of people. When they shout it out so loud in this text with excitement, that's sincere. They really thought we're saved. There was real 
zeal, but not knowledge, as we'll see. It wasn't true. It's just an assumption, but it had really taken over them. It's probably worth saying here, and I have to be so careful how I say it, I guess. The COVID vaccine, okay? Okay, bear with me, bear with me. Listen, I don't care what choice you made. Did you get it? Did you not? Figure that out. That's you. But for you and the Lord, medical, get advice. Okay, so we're not talking about those questions. I just want to isolate one group of persons who came to associate the vaccine with the mark of the beast. I got videos sent to me, I don't know if you did, that there's some connection between the mark of the beast and the COVID vaccine. How do you know, you know? How do you know that there is, you know? I think everybody's aware now that at least it's not the mark of the beast because Christians got it. So that's not going to work out. But early on especially, it is the mark of the beast or somehow it's connected to the mark of the beast. Now the mark of the beast is in the Bible. Yes, correct. How do you know that the vaccine is the mark of the beast? It is an assumption. It does not say in Revelation, it will be a vaccine in 2020, etc. Right? So I'm not arguing for or against the vaccine. Don't get upset at me, okay? But I'm just saying for this group of people, as an example, that it's the mark of the beast. It's an assumption. And what happens? It starts as an assumption that not everyone agrees with. And then it develops into an obsession where now obedience to God means don't get that it's the mark of the beast. And there's fear involved because that's always where superstitious ideas arise. Again, this is different than if you have political or medical reasons not to get it. It's different, okay? But I'm talking about those who interpret it as the reason we don't is it's the mark of the beast. This is a kind of superstition. If you look through the history of the church, there have been quite a lot of marks of the beast, surprisingly large numbers of marks of the beast apparently among Christians over history. There will be a mark of the beast. It hasn't happened yet. Listening carefully to God's word. That's what they didn't do. An assumption into an obsession. No question about what does God actually clearly say? And then times when God doesn't clearly say something, let it be. Let it be. Now, you might wonder why, as we talk about superstitions, this even matters. Let me show you in the text. This moves from an assumption to an obsession into finally an exposed error in front of everybody. Look at this, verse 6 on. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. What's so interesting in this response on the part of the Philistines is that they did better than Israel did. And I don't just mean in the battle. 
Notice, they also start with a question, just like Israel did. Their question is, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? But then see what follows. Not an assumption. And when they learned, (laughs) when they learned how things actually were, no doubt by a messenger with a word, first-hand testimony of what they saw, and they learned it. The Philistines had a question, and they actually learned the answer to their question before they decided what to do next. If only Israel had done the same. Israel had a question, question mark, little space in the text. Here's what we're doing. No reply from God. No learning of anything. Just jumping to an activity. Really, it's like what Jesus would say of a Roman centurion so many years later. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And there really is in the Philistines here a kind of faith. It's so confused. They're pagans. They can't imagine just one God. So it's confused. They're talking about gods. But notice what they say. A God has come into the camp and then woe to us. Nothing like this has happened. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Israel has their eyes on the golden box. The Philistines... They're looking at God. (laughs) That's better. That's better than what Israel's doing. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And this is one of the painful things. When we give in to superstitions that are not founded on the word of God. Some of them are innocent. The lucky socks. You keep them. I don't know. It's innocent. Nobody's going to be hurt by that. But some other of our superstitions. Things that become obsessions to us but are not based on scripture. Sometimes the world does better than us. They stand outside and they look at the church doing weird stuff and they're like, that's weird. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're right. Finally, the error of God's people is exposed, verses 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. The ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. There was the reason. That was actually the answer to their question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? If they had asked Samuel at Shiloh, he would say, Hophni and Phinehas. It's a judgment on them. They have to die for their sacrilege. If they had gone to the teaching and to the testimony, if they had a dawn, as Scripture says, if they had been like Bereans, attentive to God's word that was now open and available in the land, they would have learned. But instead, they leaned on their own understanding, became obsessed with it, excited about it. But that is the problem with superstitions. You can get so excited about them, charged up about them, but then reality hits them, just hits them like a semi, and they're gone. They just poof, they're gone, because they're not real, they're assumptions. Brothers and sisters, our takeaway from a passage like this is that we must be people of the book, and you can multiply examples in your own mind of traditions from the fathers that you have carried on that do not have a firm basis in the scriptures, but you are afraid if you don't do them, Things could be bad. Why? I don't know. This is how people have always done it. This is how Christians do it. 
Show me chapter and verse to the word, to the testimony. We have to build our lives upon the scriptures. And this is especially true when fear arises. That is when we are most vulnerable, when we're scared, we don't know what's happening, and we've always held to God's word, but now we're scared, and what if God's word doesn't have enough of an answer for us? And so the drift is to psychological answers. Maybe there's answers over here, or the drift is over here to other religious systems or to unbelievers. Somebody answer this for us. And we are tempted to drift away into some kind of superstition to provide us a superficial comfort when we have before us God's Word. God's Word does not address every issue in life, but it gives us guidance in every issue in life. It ought to be the very first place we go. We run to Shiloh not for a golden box. We run to Shiloh to hear the Word of the Lord. And if you happen to be here and you are not truly a part of God's people, meaning you've not put your faith solely in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you may be operating on a kind of Christian superstition yourself. It's very common to think, I'll get to heaven because I go to church and I don't do some of the darker sins and I'm better than a lot of people I know. How do you know that that will get you to heaven? What's the chapter and verse? that says that gets you to heaven. That is an assumption, and it will be proven false. And if that's what you've been operating under, you need to hear God's word when he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and put your faith solely in him and follow his word. Mm-hmm.